The scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. We are starting a new series in the book of Colossians. I'm going to get you to that in just a moment. A new title, slightly different direction from what was originally printed. The title of today's message, if you're taking notes, is going to be the true message of the gospel. But before we jump into this, I wanted to say that it's been a fun weekend for me and for a lot of us because if we have the picture, let's go ahead and show the picture. This guy in the middle got married. If you are unfamiliar with the guy in the middle because you are visiting with us, he is our worship director here at the church. I told him to come in. I said, look, no Sundays off, bro. I'm so sorry. But he refused, which I'm very glad. And so Paul Yoon and Kristen Betts have become Mr. and Mrs. Paul and Kristen Betts. And I do not think they're going to be here for a Sunday or two. And so uh, when you see them, give them big hugs as they are now a new family. All right. Today we're beginning a new series uh, in the book of Colossians, which is simply a short letter. So much of the New Testament is a letter uh, that is written by somebody to somebody. In this case, it's written by the Apostle Paul to a small band of Christians in the city of Colossae, which is about 100 miles inland from the western shores of modern-day Turkey. So you're saying, look, ancient city, small group of Christians, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. What implication is that going to have for my life right here in San Diego today? Let me say that Paul is writing to followers of Jesus who were trying to be faithful in a cultural and even a religious climate committed to eroding their confidence in the hope and in the sufficiency of Jesus and his gospel. Does that sound at all like there's any relevance to that? That something might be working against your hope in the sufficiency, the reality, the believability, the person of Jesus Christ. Now there are plenty of things going on in this letter that Paul is working to kind of Uh, undermine and addressed. Jewish legalism is a big part of this letter, not going to be a big part of today, but over the coming weeks we're going to get into some of those things. Legalism, Jewish legalism had made its way into this community, but even as a Roman city, because this is what they were, these were Roman citizens, the propaganda floating through Colossae would have been straightforward. It would have sounded probably something like this. There's really only one king, And his name is Caesar. There's really only one empire. 
that can offer you the security and the peace that you are really needing and that you really want. And what the Apostle Paul is doing through this short letter is he's simply saying, it's simply not true. Do not fall for the deception that you need something added to your faith, added to your life, if you are a believer in the person of Jesus, that you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus legalism, some sort of behavior, some sort of morality, some sort of tradition, in order for you to be sufficiently complete. He says the gospel is complete. And he's going to work that into their hearts because they're saying, yeah, I know Jesus was announced to us, but there's got to be other things we're going to add. We're going to talk about that in the future. But really what he's saying is don't believe the deception. Jesus is fully sufficient. As a New Testament scholar, his name is David Garland. He writes, the young church faced opponents who challenged and belittled the sufficiency of Christ and their hope. Christians today live in a secular society which regularly scoffs at Christian faith. Many Christians in the West have become increasingly uncertain of their faith and consequentially hold it uncertainly. The acids of criticism can eat away at the foundations of a weak and vacillating faith. There are also fewer cultural forces to keep people in the church. When confronted with the laughter and the scorn of modern-day scoffers, nominal church members may be tempted to capitulate. They will abandon their faith or trade it in for the latest craze. In Paul's language at the end of chapter 1, they return to the darkness where the rulers of this age hold sway. Here's what I'd like to challenge you. If you are a member of this church, regularly attendee, or considering it, or even outside of Christianity looking in, I would like to use the weeks that we are going to be in this letter as a way to wage war against lukewarm Christianity. I heard somebody say that this week, and that has deeply resonated with me. I would like us to wage war through the gospel against lukewarm Christianity. Yeah? Who wants to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that with you. Three things I'm going to lead you through today. Number one, the hope of the gospel. Number two, the power of the gospel. And number three, the person of the gospel. Our church is consistently, no matter where we're preaching from, taking you to the centerpiece of the story because the Bible is one story. It's confusing because we're in a letter to Colossians, but it's just one man writing to a group of people, figuring out faith in the moment. There are real issues that they're facing, but there is one story and it revolves around the man Jesus. And so that's where I'll take you at the end, the person of the gospel. But under point one, the hope of the gospel, some introductory thoughts and background to the letter as we get this thing started. As you know, as you may know, the gospel was first announced in the city of Jerusalem and all of those surrounding villages and even before, but especially after Jesus' death and resurrection, the good news of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God was starting to spread like wildfire all over this region. You probably could have heard a lot of people saying things like, listen, hey friend, have you heard? Jesus is a different type of king. His kingdom is redemptive. It's not coercive. His death and resurrection have secured an eternal victory over sin and death. He's defeated our enemy, the devil. The devil is also called the father of lies. He does not want you to believe any of this stuff called the gospel and the good news. And in doing so, and in defeating our enemy, he has rendered shame and condemnation undone and ineffective in eroding your faith against Jesus Christ 
Because he took your shame, because he took your condemnation. He embraced it on our behalf. And now what these people were saying to each other is, now your future is secured. Your hope has been stored up for you in heaven. Paul says that in the text we're looking at today. And this grace, this good news, this truth completely transforms human hearts and the way you live right now. They would have leaned in and said, have you heard about that? Like, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about his kingship? Have you heard about how distinct and he different, how different he was? Yeah, you probably heard about his crucifixion. Have you heard about his resurrection? It begins to prove that everything this man said and did is actually true. This is spreading like wildfire throughout the region. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus himself commissioned his followers to cross borders, and to cross boundaries, cultural, socioeconomic, Ethnic borders and moving the gospel outward, which is this beautiful, fluid, generative movement of the gospel from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and onwards to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1. The author of this letter, the man that we've come to know as the Apostle Paul, he actually makes his way into the story of Jesus in Acts chapter 9 where his life is completely changed and redirected after a personal encounter with Jesus. Very rarely, if ever. I would even say it never happens. Nobody's life is ever transformed for the good as it brings you into the truth of Christianity without a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Not an encounter with truth, not an encounter simply with scripture or intellectual knowledge about Christianity. You've got to meet a person. Now the person, Paul, who's writing this letter, he meets Jesus Christ. He was vehemently opposed, if you know his background. He hated Christians, thought he was doing a service to God by putting them to jail, putting them to death. He encounters the risen Jesus Christ and it changes his life. It redirects his purpose. Paul submits all of his gifts, all of his background, all of his incredible intellect and knowledge and ability and entrepreneurial skill. All of this gets funneled into the spread of the gospel. And Paul is commissioned as an apostle to the Gentile, non-Jewish world. Many of Jesus' disciples, the 12, they were primarily sent to the Jews the Apostle Paul is sent to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world, and begins to take the gospel all over the Mediterranean basin. And by Acts chapter 19, Paul finds himself in the Roman city of Ephesus. Now we're getting into Turkey, where our story is taking place. Paul's made his way into Ephesus, which is on the western edge there, about 100 miles from Colossae. And when Paul entered into these cities where he's spreading the gospel, where he's talking about Jesus, Paul often went to a local synagogue in order to find an audience because this is a place where ideas were shared. So this is what we find in Acts chapter 19. Here we read that Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. And he took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is a detail that's so easily missed. I don't think I've even paid attention to this. That Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus for three months. 
He's probably having incredible conversations. People begin to bristle because he's so persuasive. They become obstinate. Paul says, all right, I'm not going to come to the synagogue anymore. He takes his disciples. He goes to the hall of Tyrannus for two years, and he starts a school of discipleship and formation. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for two years with the Apostle Paul, figuring out what it meant for these people to engage with the gospel than to go back out into the world. What it says is that for two years, Paul is doing this, and then, quote, I think it's verse 10. It says that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's a lot of people. All the people in the region, because of the school of, in the hall of Tyrannus that took place for two years, all these people begin to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And scholars think that one of the people who heard during those two years was a man by the name of Epaphras, who were introduced here, who is a citizen in Colossae, takes the gospel back to his small city in the Lycus River Valley, and a small church is birthed because of his ministry and because of the, his willingness to spread the gospel. A local church is birthed. And by way of background, it's important to note that Paul has never visited Colossae, this letter. He's never been to this city. Many of the churches he planted, he's been there, he follows up. In this case, his connection is this friend Epaphras. And Paul is writing from prison, most likely in Rome, maybe even in Ephesus, to encourage this faithful little band of disciples to believe that in receiving the gospel, they have received the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of God's presence in the life of Jesus Christ and that no legalistic religious appendices needed to be pinned on to their experience of faith. As I said at the beginning, Jesus plus tradition, Jesus plus special, special knowledge, the Gnostic world that was infiltrating Colossae or even certain behaviors that needed to be added for them to be whole and complete. And Paul says, no, that's not what this gospel is about. Now, let's go to verse 3. Let's jump in with our text for a moment. Verse 3 with a little bit of background in place. <clears throat> in verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel, that has come to you. Okay? Here's what Paul is saying. He says, we are giving God thanks that when the true message of the gospel made its way into your community, it produced a few things. Genuine faith in Jesus that resulted in deep love for other people, all springing from the hope that they have already established for them in heaven. Okay, here's what he's saying. Faith, love, hope. I'm giving God thanks for that. He hears about what's happening in the community. He goes, you have faith in Jesus. I met a dear brother last night at the wedding. He's got a lot of faith. It's not in Jesus. He says, I believe in God. I'm close to believing in Jesus. The gospel makes some sense, but not full sense to this young man. We had an incredible conversation. Paul is very specific. He says, this faith that's being produced in your community, it's not generic. It is specifically about the person of Jesus. You have faith in Jesus, and that's erupting 
in love for other people. And it's all grounded in the hope that you have stored up for you that's already established in heaven, right? So he says, let me just give some observations. Faith is happening. Love is happening. Hope is happening. Joy is the dominant experience of the Colossian community. So let's ask that question of ourselves. Does your version and does your understanding of the gospel result in that deep joy? And like this, the first thing he gives thanks for, he goes, I've heard of your community. Man, faith is bubbling over. Man, there's joy. You're loving one another sacrificially. It's all coming from this storehouse of hope. What does your faith look like? If you're a Christian, or does it feel like that? Does your version and understanding of the gospel feel light and joyful, or does it feel like dead weight, like an old tradition? Uh, for Christmas, <clears throat> our family decided to funnel some money from grandparents instead of buying some more gifts. Danielle and I took the money to surprise the kids with a, uh, a last-minute gift or trip to Disney, all right? We hadn't been in like five or six years. And so my parents said, we'd love to send you some cash. You can buy whatever you want for the kids. And Danielle said, let's do a trip. Let's make some memories. It's been a long time. Last time we rode Nemo, we don't want to ride Nemo anymore. We want to ride the big kid rides. I got big kids now, 14. How old's Penny? She's 12, 10. We can ride the big things now. So we're like, we're going back to Disney. The way we structured this was at the end of our morning, after all the gifts had been opened, we had an ornament with Mickey hiding on the back of the tree. And I gave the kids some clues and they were supposed to look all over the house and if they couldn't get it after the first clue they got a second clue and a third and so all they needed to do was find Mickey on the back he was holding a sign and an invitation that when they opened it it said surprise oh my gosh we're going to Disneyland not that day on Christmas Day, but in a couple of days on January 2nd and so they got the clues they went and found Mickey and of course there's this rejoicing because we hadn't been in so long. They were so excited to be able to go to Disneyland. And I think when you get a sign and you get an invitation that says, hey, we're going to Disney, there's only two possible reactions. And they're essentially, oh my gosh, we're going to Disney, which is what my kids had. And then Danielle and I look, looked at each other like, oh my gosh, we're going to Disney, <laughs> right? Like we better get prepared for this. We're going to leave at 545. We're that family. We leave at 545, get there by 715, do the full day, come back fully exhausted, have a Disney hangover the next day, right? Just from all of the immersion into the greatest place on earth, the happiest place with also the longest lines, right? Two reactions to the happiest place on earth. Oh my gosh, we're going to Disney. Or maybe as you get a little older or you've been a few times, you're like, oh my gosh, like we're going to Disney. What is your reaction to the good news of the gospel? Is it, oh my gosh? Or is it like, oh well, I've heard it before. Paul says when he looks into this community, he sees something rich and deep and vibrant and alive. He says, man, your faith is real. It's in the person. You're overflowing with joy. And he gives thanks because he can see it. Paul says in verse 4, look there. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. The faith and the love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Paul gives thanks for their faith and for their love, which spring from the hope already stored up for them 
in heaven. Let me make a point here. Religion says this. If you want hope in heaven, you better perform, you better add up. But Christianity says something very different. The gospel says this. The gospel says that your hope in heaven is stored up, which means it's already there, which means you don't have to add up. If you have to add up to get God's love, goodness, and grace in your life, let me guarantee you there will be no joy, no faith, no love for your neighbor, and no hope because you're really saying the hope's in me and I don't know if I'm enough. But he says there's something different for you in the gospel. Hope stored up. Fully there. Ready for you to tap into. Right here in the kingdom because the king has come. But also waiting for you. It's secure. If you have to add up. If that's your experience of Christianity. If that's your understanding of who God actually is. I will say I will not be surprised if you think Christianity is a cold wet blanket. Dead tradition. And has made no impact on your life. Paul says, lean into something different. Hope is stored up for you. It's waiting. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance. So as I transition, the biggest part of this sermon is part one. Is this you? Is there faith and hope and love and a deep joy because of your connection to Jesus Christ? Is that brewing in your heart? Is that what it means for you to be a Christian? Or does it feel like dead weight, old tradition, and there is no joy? Paul says it can change. It could change for you today. Let me take you to part two, the power of the gospel. Look at verse three again. Verse three says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So look at verse 5. In verse 5, Paul gives thanks for the truth of the gospel, right? I mean, like the, the gospel is a body of truth. It's doctrine to be considered. You got to think about it. You got to study it. You have to weigh it. Is it have good um, background evidence? Are there things here that resonate with the true experience of my life and our world? Are there historians who have affirmed this? Is this true? Does it make sense of the world that we live in? Not the perceived world, not the perceived story. But the real story of the human life and the human heart and what's going to fix it. Paul says the message is true. There's truth there, but there's also power behind it. Paul says in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. The message when it goes to this little backwater city, town, village called Colossae, when it went to Ephesus, when it went to Rome, when it went to New York, when it went to San Diego... It is producing change in people's lives. It's that effective. It's not just an intellectual thing to assent to. Truth. No, but it's truth with power. He says, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. 
Let me take you to 1 Timothy 4, chapter 8, which is another uh, letter that the Apostle Paul has written. 1 Timothy 4, 8, Paul says this. He says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Why go there? In both of these letters, Paul is not saying that the body doesn't matter. There is nothing wrong with caring for the outside of our bodies, with caring for the body that God has given you. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. He says that you have one body, steward it well. The physical matters. You live in a physical world. We are not Gnostics. We are not believing that the spiritual is somehow more holy and better. That is not Christianity. Jesus had a what? Body. Pre-resurrection, post-resurrection, physical body. It matters. Caring for it is called wisdom. It's a good thing. Christianity does not undermine it. But here is what Paul is saying. He says if this is all you do, caring for things on the outside, like your body and what you wear, what you eat, where you live, what you drink, caring more about what people see on the outside of you, Paul is saying that one day you will look in the mirror and you will notice that there is an incongruity in your life. As one author put it, you are going to realize that the outside has become so much greater than the inside. You do not want that to happen. You do not want to be that sort of person. It's not what you were made for. But it is so natural and it is so easy to care about the things on the outside. Yes, I've got a great zip code, comfortable life, good-looking, sleek body. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about you, by the way. <clears throat> but I'm lacking on the inside, man. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I do not have what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. I've got a lot of other things. But they're all on the exterior. And they can move the needle just a little bit. But not on your heart. They can't do it. The Bible says you need something from the outside to move into your inside so you can find consistency, that you can be changing externally, sure, but on the inside being completely transformed. The Bible calls this the fruit of the Spirit. Bodily training is valuable, Paul says, but training in godliness is actually more valuable for this life and the life to come. So let's ask this question. How does the fruit get produced in somebody's life? So important. How does the change actually work? Well, actually, do I think there are a few different ways, but fundamentally, let's just go there. Fundamentally, baseline. When the gospel comes home in somebody's life, a transfer takes place. Transfer of affection, transfer of love, transfer of worship takes place in somebody's life. God, through the Holy Spirit, begins to take up residence in your life. Love for Jesus begins to replace the love for other things. Augustine talked all about this. We talk a lot about this too. We're talking about the ordering of your loves. When Jesus Christ breaks into somebody's life, he becomes primary. It doesn't even make sense for him to be second, third, or fourth. Like lukewarm Christianity doesn't even make sense. Like, if it's true, he's got to be at the center of our lives, no? Like, it doesn't conceptualize. Like, how can you conceptualize of something other? I believe he's there, but I'm going to keep him on the sideline. This is not Christianity. 
when he becomes the king of your life, you know what all of a sudden you have in your heart? Room. Real estate. Like there's space all of a sudden. And you had filled it up with stuff, probably very good stuff. Relationships, ambitions, dreams, hurts, wounds, fears. They're dominant. They're dominating your life. They are the only thing that your imagination can go to. But when Christ comes in, he begins to shift things. He kind of says, like, excuse me, I would like to get to the front of the line. So these other things begin to make sense. And they only make sense, second, third, and fourth. And when he has room, okay, when he has priority, the Holy Spirit begins to nurture the seeds that he has planted in your life so that your interior begins to match your exterior, right? You find these things going together. This is Christianity. This is what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And as I take us to the last part, which is really a teaser for the next coming weeks, is this what God is doing in your life? Right? You think a lot about Christianity. Is there territory? Is there real estate in your heart? Is there room for God to produce that fruit that he produced in Colossae, that Paul gives thanks for, that the gospel is producing all over the world, no matter where it goes? Is he producing that in your life? Would you like him to? Because you can, and he will. Let me take you to this last part. Hope of the gospel, the incredible power of the gospel, and the person of the gospel. We'll go to the last verses, verse 28, last part of this chapter. Verse 28 says, him we proclaim, talking about Jesus. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, Paul says, I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Remember, Paul is writing to these Colossian Christians so that they would not second guess, so that they would not compromise or search for something other than Christ to fix what's going on on the inside of their lives. Paul says at the end of chapter 1, him we proclaim. I, he says, I struggle with all of his energy so powerfully at work within me. He goes, look, my interior is changing Christ in me. All of my labor, all of this ministry, all of this work comes from Christ who is in me. You know what a lot of people said about Paul on the outside? Very unimpressive. You remember that? Very unimpressive, not charismatic, probably not particularly handsome, good looking, nothing to compel people and to track them. People said he's not even a good public speaker. Man, but this man's interior was alive because Jesus was alive in Paul's interior. It's that simple. You know, and as our church, what we are trying to do is position those who want it to get more of Christ. That's what our cohorts are for. That's what our ministries are for, community groups, is to position you to get more of Christ's love on the interior so that he begins to produce the fruit that you are longing for so that you can have the life he's destined for you, so that you could be fully mature, looking more like our elder brother Jesus. In Jesus, 
in Christ. Such a huge New Testament theme, and especially in this letter. It's like all about a person. In him, in him, in him, in him. He is the good news. In him, the human heart has everything it needs to establish a secure identity. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, shame has had its day. In Christ, there is a secure future and a secure hope for you. Do you know him? Is he in you? Is he producing life in you? There is power in the gospel. It's always been there. But have we positioned our hearts to encounter him? A person. Not a religious technique. A person. Look even how Paul starts the letter. He says, to God's holy people. And if you were walking around Colossae in that day, you'd be like, man, these people are not very holy. They are very ordinary. You know why they're called saints in the Bible? It's because they have hope stored up for them by Jesus, applied to their account, and they're considered holy. They're not actually holy. They're just like you and me. But they are considered saints, faithful brothers and sisters. And I love how Paul says that at the very beginning. He goes, I know this Christianity thing is hard, but you're being so faithful. You are being so faithful. He calls them the faithful ones, brothers and sisters. This call to walk with Jesus is not easy. As one of my preachers, my favorite preachers, John Tyson, has said, what he's saying in the beginning of this letter and throughout is, you have not maxed Jesus out yet. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. It feels like dead weight, cold blanket. Let's wage war against lukewarm Christianity through Paul's letter to this young church struggling just like us. But you have not maxed out Jesus yet. Yeah? Let's lean into him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to believe it's true and the part of our hearts probably say, could it be? Could it be? Is there more? Will you produce life in me? Will you produce fruit in me? Will you take away my shame? Will you rearrange and forgive my guilt? Will you come to me in the same way that you came to the Colossians? And the resounding answer is absolutely. Jesus, will you store up hope for me? Absolutely. Jesus, can I have real faith? I have so many questions. Yes. There is sufficiency in the simple message of Christ's love, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection. It's not just a starting point of faith. It is the fuel for every day. And I think for those people in this room who uh, have walked with you for a long time, they know that to be true. That each day they wake up, we wake up, knowing that what is most needed is mercy, it's grace, it's forgiveness. It's you making the move toward us. And Jesus, we are not just pulling up our bootstraps saying we want to wage war against lukewarm Christianity. We're saying help. Help us to believe the simple truth of the gospel. Help us to take steps to rearrange the interior of our lives. We need your spirit's assistance to do that. And praise God, he's called the advocate. He's our helper. He will do that with us. But we need friends, man. We need real people.
people around us who can say, I see you. I know your heart. You've exposed enough. I'd like to walk with you in this journey of following Christ. Make us a church like that. No solo Christians. Every single person who calls Trinity home, connected to someone else whom they trust, build that sort of community here. Lord, we trust you for the things that are impossible. You are so faithful. In Jesus' great name we pray.